and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast, where Lee and I will be hosting Jessica Smith. Jessica is an amazing lady, an Olympian, and she's received some amazing awards. She's done some incredible things, and she really is a champion for inspiring leadership and also for the Ride for Unity, which we're going to be talking about today. So without further ado, Jessica, welcome and tell us a little bit about yourself, if you'd give an introduction. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Jessica Smith and I was born and grew up in Australia, um, born missing my left arm. And to this day, we still don't know why that occurred. And for me, I guess there were a lot of questions from a young age about why I looked the way that I did, why I had a disability. And I found a lot of answers through sport. I, you know, growing up in Australia in a very sporting family, it was a natural progression, I guess, for me to prove to the world that I wasn't going to be limited or defined by my appearance or disability through movement. And I fell in love with sport at a young age, in particular swimming, and progressed to compete for Australia for seven to eight years and culminating in the 2004 Paralympic Games. And since my retirement, I've dedicated a lot of my work and time and energy to disability and inclusion as a children's author, a motivational speaker, and now as a mum and trying to, to balance all of those things together. Wow. Well, uh, it's amazing that you can pack it in. And Lee and I are really honoured to have you on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You definitely deserve to be here. Now, we're all coming together. We're part of the same team. Um, we, we're going to be in uh, January from about the 5th to about the 13th. We're going to be riding for unity, seven Emirates and seven days. Would you tell the people around the world in about 125 countries what it is that we're doing? And um, yeah, just give them a bit of a flavor of it. So essentially, we are riding through the seven emirates of the United Arab Emirates, and it's an opportunity to really focus on unity and collaboration and inclusion. So there's a bunch of us from all different backgrounds, all different abilities coming together with the message of hope and opportunity and a, a chance to really highlight the importance of how much we are actually alike than we are different. And I think that, you know, that speaks volumes across so many different platforms and so many different industries and dissecting the complexities of, of who, who we are as human beings. And I think it's just a, a beautiful opportunity to use sport and movement and exercise and, and wellness as a way to, to bring so many people together. Fantastic. Lovely. It is such a privilege to have you here on the Inspiring Leadership podcast today. Um, we're really excited about it. And what strikes me is there are so many individuals out there that have a story to tell in positions of influence, but they come from this story of individualism. So um, about their world and what they want to bring out into the world. But what really strikes me is you have this manifestation of pure collectivism now, um, where everything that you do today, your work and the services that you deliver, I'd love to know more about that um, for people with disabilities, your book, 
um, the stuff that you're doing now for mums as well, um, really, really important for mums who might be even struggling out there and the, the message that you're going out there. So um, all of these different achievements, but it's this true expression of being wholly inclusive and a, a kind of a bigger cause. And so I'm curious about, as you kind of look back over your past, your history, your journey through life, the highs and the lows, um, what are the key influences, the experiences that fundamentally led you to do the work that you do today? It's a really good question. And I think to answer that, you know, briefly, it's all about the failures that I've had to go through and the challenges and obstacles that I've had to endure that have given me a different perspective on my world and then the world that I live in. And so, you know, being born with a disability and then as a very young child, I sustained um, horrible burns in a kitchen accident. I looked different to everybody around me. You know, I have three younger brothers who none have a disability. You know, nobody else in my immediate family has a disability. And so I was acutely aware from such a young age that I was different. And the way that I was treated by society was as though my differences were wrong. There was something so different about me that meant that for some reason I wasn't accepted into society and certainly when I was growing up I never saw myself represented in mainstream media I never saw disability portrayed in a positive way you know even if listeners now think back to when and how they saw disability portrayed we're often seen as a villain something or someone to be scared of to be afraid of to run from and so when I was younger, trying to understand that's not me, but that's how my identity and my physical appearance is being portrayed to the rest of the world. And so I felt this immense pressure that I had to constantly prove to everybody else that I was worthy just the way that I was. But I felt that that was never good enough. And so in order, in order to counteract the fact that I had a disability, it was as if I had to be the best at everything that I did in order for people to say, oh, well, okay, she has a disability, but she's a good athlete or, you know, she's a good uh, academically or whatever it was. And so for me, I felt this constant pressure throughout my entire life. Um, but swimming was something that gave me uh, an avenue to potentially express a lot of the toxic and negative energy that I was feeling as a young person growing up. And going through puberty and adolescence and just wanting to fit in, just wanting to be someone who belonged to a community, whether that was at school or whether that was, you know, in the town or city where I was living, I never felt that connection. And so sport gave me an opportunity to have a sense of release. And, you know, I excelled quite quickly. I remember competing at my first school event at the age of 10. And there was a teacher who told me that they didn't think I could swim the 50 metres freestyle. And I remember thinking, you know, that little voice inside of me from that age was so powerful, but I had to make a decision at that point to listen to that voice and listen to the negativity or to trust that gut instinct and my own abilities and knowing that I could swim that full distance. And thankfully I did, I dove in and when I you know, finished and turned around, I realized that I had won and I had beaten all the girls and all the boys with two hands. And for the first time in my life, I felt as though I was being seen and acknowledged for what I could do, rather than the perceived assumption from others about what they thought I couldn't do. And so swimming gave me that sense of power and a boost in 
self-confidence and self-esteem and self-respect that I had never really experienced until that time. And so I dedicated, you know, all of my time and energy to swimming. Um, my poor parents who had to drive me, you know, at 4.30 every morning to the pool. I think for them, they also realised that this was an opportunity for me to express myself in a positive way. You know, they knew that they didn't potentially have all the answers to the questions that I was asking. And they were also experiencing different feelings of guilt and shame as well. And so this was an opportunity for the whole family to sort of be on a journey together, even though it was essentially at that time about me, it it was something bigger. And I think they could sense that. Um, but throughout that time, you know, I lost so many more races than I ever won. And there was a lot more failure than I think people realise. So I competed for Australia from the age of 13 to 21. And throughout that time, I was still struggling with body image and wanting to be the perfect person that fit the stereotypical mold of what a young woman is supposed to look like. And because I didn't, I internalized a lot of that pressure, which you know resulted in eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia throughout the peak of my swimming career. And so when I was finally selected to represent Australia in Athens in 2004, it was a highlight of my career, but also the low, lowest point because uh, what most people don't know and what took me about a decade to articulate was I was the only member of the Australian swimming team to not make a final and I should have medaled in three individual events and the relay and so because my body had basically given up in terms of the the impact of the eating disorders and and depression and everything that else I was going through I wasn't able to perform when I needed to the most and so again the shame and the guilt that was associated with that resulted in me coming back to Australia and retiring prematurely because I knew that I couldn't continue on that path knowing I guess a lot of the toxicity that was around me at the time wouldn't serve me. And so I was admitted to a rehab facility in Australia where I spent six weeks. But that was rock bottom, but also as many people would, you know, say when they talk about the sort of a, a big recovery journey because I had to let go of everything that I knew. I had to walk away from my swimming career. Everything that had given me that sense of self and sense of purpose had now crumbled into a million pieces. And I had to find enough resilience to trust that the next step would unfold. And I really didn't think that it would, but I don't know what it was. I feel that I was born with some innate ability to push a little bit further because there were many times when I thought of giving up because if I didn't have swimming, if I didn't have that as my identity, I didn't want to be just a girl with a disability. I didn't want to be in that community. I didn't want that to define me or to for what people associated with me because I knew I was so much more. And that's not to take away from disability or anyone living with a disability. It says more about where society was at and the at the time when I was growing up, we looked at disability very much through a medical lens rather than a social perspective. And so I didn't know what that next step would be. But thankfully, you know, with the support of family and friends, I was able to close that chapter, uh, which I now realise it was just a chapter, and to trust that the next step was going to unfold. It was kind of like walking a tightrope and not being able to take any step back. Um, and in that process, you know, it was a lot of 
self-exploration, a lot of really dark and challenging times of trying to figure out who I was, what was my purpose. And for many years, people asked me to come and share my story as a Paralympian, talk about disability. And I never wanted to. I tried to avoid it so much because I felt as though I also didn't belong in the disability community because I felt that my disability wasn't as severe, I guess, as other people living with a disability. So I didn't think it was my place or space to be able to speak on behalf of other people. Uh, but then I realised, of course, that my story is a metaphor for so many other people in their experiences and what they're going through. And I have a responsibility to be that voice for other people who can't share theirs, whether that's metaphorically or literally. And so I've now, I guess, somehow been able to, again, recalibrate and pivot in many instances and draw the parallels from my swimming career and apply that to the things that I do today and to be able to focus on what is my role in this world. And it's a role of service and it's a role of giving back but also paying it forward because especially for people living with a disability, there aren't, unfortunately, enough avenues or enough platforms for us to be able to share our story. And you mentioned the importance of storytelling and how powerful that is. And I think that, you know, I, I know that sometimes it can be... Um, mistaken for ego when we share too much about our stories but for me it comes from a place of genuinely wanting to help because I wish someone had been a voice for me when I was younger and when I was struggling and so I take it with immense pride and immense responsibility that I can share little snippets of who I am and what my life is like mainly for other parents who have a child living with a disability they're the 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 majority of people who will contact me tell me that it's going to be okay. Tell me that my child is going to have a positive future. And so I say, of course they are, there will be challenges just like anybody else. But if I can share those moments of hope with other families, then I feel that I need to do that because I wish, and I know my parents wish they had had that support as well. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge kind of the inner strength. So sometimes when we explore this with people is, um, you know, about what got what got somebody to where they are today. And it's about the resources outside of them. But what really struck me in your description there was just actually how you had to draw from within. It's not that you didn't have to go to the dark side. You've been there so many different times. But what you just kind of, you had to dig deep in to kind of get from yourself, that resourcefulness from yourself in order to kind of show your best true self to the world. And that um, and I think the world is going to be a better place for it. It is a better place for it. So real privilege to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. And I think with that self-exploration, it can be very lonely at times. And I think that is a fear that a lot of people perhaps aren't yet ready to take when they go on that journey for themselves. But for me, I had no choice. It was literally a matter of life or death. And so there was enough light inside for me to say, you know, my life is going to be amazing and I had to trust that. But it, it can be very, very scary. And you realise when you do this work on yourself that it identifies in your life who else might be doing work on themselves and who is not. And you're able to then identify, okay, who do you need to surround yourself with in order to safely secure your own journey um, to a point where I now honestly believe and say wholeheartedly that I'm content with who I am and what I do and what I say and the people that I have around me. But it took it took a while. So thank you for acknowledging that. No, I, I like Lee. I'm really taken by what you shared there and just the 
the raw authenticity of it. And um, <clears throat> the point you make at the end, just in any interaction, such so interaction with a neighbor the other day, and, and you don't know what's going on for them. Mm. You have no idea. And, and you just, we judge them by the action, what goes on. We have no idea of their intention or all the background story or what's happening for them. And so I think something that clearly comes out in meeting you is this curiosity in other people, having done the work on ourselves. And, and, and I certainly know that Lee and I have found it very helpful to continually keep working on ourselves, not in a self-focused way, but it's just like we can't be good coaches, leadership development people, podcasters for others, unless we're genuinely interested in people. And we want to know their story. We want to know your story, Jessica. And people listening want to know your story. But they're always putting it, so what does this mean for me? And what can I learn from her that might make my journey easier, less painful? Uh, maybe there's there's a way of 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 learning from the best. And, and certainly, you know, for me, your life experiences are, are phenomenal. So from all those experiences, if you were to pick out a high point, Something that um, was really one of the greatest achievements of your life. I don't know. It could be anything. It could be being a mother. Um, but, and what you learned from that, what would it be? Or if there's a couple, if you had. It would definitely be when I became a mother. I have three young children aged eight, six and four. So life is very busy and very hectic. But when I surrendered to the fact that I learn more from my children than I will ever really be able to teach them was a very humbling experience and very profound because then I accepted that I'm on this journey with them. And I think when I was growing up, I needed that a little bit more than sort of authority telling me how I should live my life and how I should feel and how I should react, especially as a female with a disability. There was a lot of people in power, whether that was in the swimming pool or whether that was at school, that sort of tried to tell me how I should behave and how I should react. And I think one of the, the most amazing moments was becoming a mother and realising that I now know so much less than what I, what I realised. And as you've just said, the curiosity and the fascination in wanting to learn about other people so that I can do my best to help them on their journey, you know, as, as a mother. Um, then in the sporting world, I mean, representing my country, Australia, at the Paralympic Games was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and, but the highlight when it comes to awards was when I received uh, the OAM, which is the Order of Australia Medal. It's one of the highest uh, accolades given to an Australian. And that was for two things. That was to service to the community and commitment to sport. And I realised then that it was just validation for everything that I had been doing. However, it was motivation to keep going, knowing that I'm on the right track. And so I've been very fortunate to have, you know, that the sporting accolades and then the the personal life achievements of of being a mum is is certainly very very exciting is um a fascinating and actually what you're describing there there's a wonderful book by Nancy Klein called time to think and actually the follow on book um the promise that changes everything i won't interrupt you and um in a world almost like where we're asserting our own opinions assaulting other people's opinions and thoughts and and actually to create these space for other people to think, no matter what generation they are, no matter what differences that they bring, and to encourage that and to invite it 
and to pay attention is just so powerful. We learn so much. Um, shifting from learning to teaching, um, and if you were to think back to maybe your younger self, if you were to give your, your younger self a piece of advice that would help you to find ease with the world, um, what would that piece of advice, of advice be? I think it would have been just to trust the process. And the reason I say that is because I look back now and I realise that everything I went through has led to who I am today. Every horrible experience, and there have been some very horrible experiences, every dark moment, every challenge has made me who I am. It's part of that journey. Um, and I think so I wouldn't have gone back and I wouldn't have changed anything. I wouldn't say to my younger self here, I'm going to help you to deviate or I'm going to help you to avoid something because I think all of those experiences were what I needed to experience in that particular moment. But to have trust in that, you know, I think is something very, very difficult because when you feel as though the world is crumbling around you, to trust that you are exactly where you are supposed to be in any given moment can be very, very difficult. So if I think if I had just known that, if I had just known that it was all going to work out in the end, I wouldn't have resisted so much. Um, but that's all part of it. So I wouldn't change anything. Um, I just think, you know, I know it sounds cliche, but to be kinder to myself in those those times, but that hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I think everyone would would say that there were things that they wish that they could change or do differently. But um, for me, I mean, I feel a lot wiser now and I think becoming a mother has helped with that, but I wouldn't change anything. Uh, but for my own children, this is where it, it changes because I will try to help them as much as I can and and teach them to avoid pain as, as much as I can. But I also realise that they need to experience a lot of that in order to be the people that they will potentially become. And that's one of the hardest things is knowing that whenever I'm in a moment of thinking, what is going on? This isn't what I planned. This isn't how it was supposed to go, of just sitting and thinking there's a lesson here and I just have to be patient. Um, so, yeah, patience and, and trust the process. Mm. I think there's a lesson for mums as well in there too. <laughs> so. Yes, yes the, tr the Trust Inspire book that's just out here from Stephen Covey. We had Stephen as uh, one of our guests on the podcast. What a fascinating man. And that's a great book for mums to read and for leaders to read about the amount of trust that we give to our children or to the people who work for us and how we uh, inspire them to inspire others. Um Moral quotient is, is one of the eight components of the research that we've done about what makes effective and um, high-performing leaders and teams. And it's what we, you know, you refer to true north, your values, your beliefs, your principles that you'll live by, what you will do, what you won't do. And, and there may be a story uh, in your own life of when you let things slip and how you got yourself back on track and with that, I'd love you to hear a, a bit of advice to others when they're trying to bring themselves back onto a, a clear, true north and and not slipping off it. So what, what's your story about when things slipped and how you brought yourself back onto true north? Well, I'm very focused on being goal oriented and having that growth mindset. And so if I, you know, do this as often as I can with setting what the, the main goal is and then setting smaller goals in to help me achieve that bigger goal, whatever it might be, whether that's personally, financially, professionally. Um, but it can be very easy to, to be 
you know, persuade a different way or to deviate because of other things that are happening. Um, so for me, I don't think it's anything new that, you know, people listening wouldn't have heard of before, but taking the moment to actually come back and say, well, what was it that I was hoping to achieve and work my way back? And where am I now? Um, because I think that, you know, a lot of this information we've, we've heard before, we've read in books, we've listened to on podcasts, it's not new but we don't take the time to actually sit down and do it. And so being able to allocate time every week, every month to go back and to recalibrate and say, okay, what was it that we said we were going to try to achieve? How, where are we on that journey? Because obviously we all know that it's not linear. It, you know, there's so many different things that, that come in and have wreak havoc and play effect. So we have to take time out on a continual basis to put ourselves back in that situation and say, okay, what was it that I said I was planning to achieve? And where am I now? And am I on that right track? If not, it's okay to change. It's okay to make a decision that I didn't think I would have to when I initially set out on achieving this goal. And I think for a lot of people, we put so much pressure on ourselves that that goal setting and that achievement toward that goal needs to be linear. And it's not, it never is. So taking the time and, and prioritizing it, putting it in the calendar, putting it in the diary to say, this is time where I take a little bit of, you know, moments out to think about what's that next step and how can I be supported in that next step? And if it means changing the people around us or if it means changing some of those smaller goals that we thought were steps towards that bigger goal, then we have to have the courage to be able to do that. But often we're too fearful because we haven't allowed enough time for us to go back and have a look at that we're so busy in our day-to-day -day lives there's so many other excuses so we keep plowing forward we burn ourselves out because we think no we just need to have our eyes set on that fixated end goal but the problem is if we don't achieve all the little things in the in the meantime we get to a point where we're like this isn't this isn't working this isn't what I thought it was going to be and if you don't have time allocated to sitting down and going through that it becomes so overwhelming we walk away we failed we haven't achieved what we were supposed to achieve but if we prioritize those moments out it allows us that sense to breathe and go actually I am on course it's potentially not the course I thought I was going to be on but I am still going in that right direction. Great, great wisdom and great practical advice. And it reminds us of one of our other guests. We had Harry Buddha Magar. Now, Harry, you might know, uh, is the first uh, double above the knee amputee uh, from an IED in Afghanistan that blew him up to climb Mount Everest this year. But uh, the point that he made in, in talking with us was that this year, um, that the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer is a, a great read about Everest and shocking because about nine people die in the whole story that he, he has. But Harry, this year, 17 died, 17 people trying to ascend Everest because they were so goal obsessed that they didn't stick to reviewing. Uh, you know, it, the weather's changing. So at three o'clock, you must turn back. No, I'm almost there. I've got another hour and I'll be on the summit. And then I've done it. No, no, you're only a third of the way in the journey. You've got to get back down again safely. And the weather turned and people died. And then they got to the tent and there wasn't enough oxygen and there wasn't enough food. And so the story rambles on. But I, I think what you've given is great advice. And Lee and I know this. She had another lady she introduced, Isabel Santois, 
uh, who's a mountain guide, um, this this whole idea about be careful not to be so obsessed with the goal that if the circumstances change, like if the situation changes, said Churchill, I change my opinion. What do you do? Um, and so I think that's a good reminder. I don't know what you would say about Isabel Lee and when you interviewed her. Oh, only just that it's just another powerhouse of a woman that, you know, she's she's so tiny and and um, in physique and yet um, giant in terms of her attitude and her determination. Um, and she's one of very few female professional mountain guides that just, you know, um, uh, climb to the summit of so many different mountains and take other people with her. But um, she's got a strong head on her shoulders and, um, yeah, another exemplar uh, female leader paving the way for others um i think there's something in here as well so just kind of connecting the moral quotient so um because you're talking about what you put that in service of pq is our next one so purpose vision meaning and i think there's a real correlation between how you take everything that you fundamentally believe in that is so strong for you now and you've turned that into your vision for the work that you do and how you execute that successfully. So thinking about that, you know, there's 16% disability uh, around the world, um, and you find your voice within a system to actually help to inspire others. Um, And you've set up an organization as well. So you don't let people fall short of actually setting certain standards. So organizations, and I've seen this as a woman, actually as a speaker, quite often people will come to you and they'll say, oh, can you come and do a speech for us? But will you do it for free, please? Mm-hmm. But you're, you're actually taking everything that you fundamentally believe alongside everything that you experience and turning that into a business that is actually helping to create change for people that actually need to share their voice, but also need to have a sense of equity and equality in areas that really, really matter and giving them the confidence to do that. So talk to us a little bit about what your your strategy, your vision is and your work that you do today. Well, exactly. I was getting asked to come and speak and share my story and essentially consult for major corporations and do that for free because they're doing me a favour. You know, not many people with a disability are given this opportunity. And I and and at the beginning, I would say yes, because that's what I believed as well. You know, I should be grateful for these opportunities. No one else is giving um, someone with a disability a platform. So go and do it for free. And then I realized that my self-worth is very valuable and very important. And it's not that I was just sharing my story. I had all the academic research behind that, you know, and so I realized that for me to be able to deliver something that was valuable to an audience, then I needed to value that as well. And so that was when I said, well, this is what the the fee is and this is what, you know, the cost is. And see that as an investment in your people and in your organization and your strategies and your structures and your policies. And when you phrase and use the terminology that allows people to see it from a different perspective I'm not here for charity I'm not here for you to feel sorry for I'm here to help you to inspire and lead your people so that you you can create better services or products for a much wider uh, population group or community then you start to see the value and how much that's appreciated and then I realized of course that I'm not the only person with the story not at all there's so many people who have a story that needs to be told and Interestingly, 
a lot of those stories are about perseverance and they're about overcoming immense struggle. And so you do find that a lot of people living with a disability or with, you know, what a lot of people perceive as traumatic or horrific stories are the ones who have those stories that need to be shared. So I thought I can't be the only person on this journey struggling to be able to pay for my own, you know, expenses and and my life and my family because this is a work that I really want to do how can I make sure that it's not just me and so you know creating an organization or a consultancy where I'm able to lift other people up so that they can share their stories because it's not about me it is about everybody else um, but giving them the platform to do that and in the process a lot of the work I now do is sort of stepping back a little bit from sharing my story, but going into organisations and doing workshops and educating around disability inclusion and then inviting um, some of our speakers who live with a disability to come and share their story. And so then they're able to be part of that process and an organisation has benefited from not just having someone share their story, but having the education around why that's actually important. And I wanted to create it as a business, again, not a charity, not a foundation, because people need to understand the value and the worth in what we're sharing. And as you said, 16% of the population, it's a huge portion of the population. Um, But further to that is that the majority of people living with a disability are of working age. And so we want to be able to earn money, but we want to be able to spend that money. And so if organisations are proactively engaging with people who have a disability, I'm going to be more loyal from a customer perspective to those particular organisations. So you realise that it is, you know, a huge cycle, um, but the, the issue is being able to come in and educate around that and to to lead in this um, discussion when we talk about equity, diversity and inclusion and helping people to understand that if disability isn't at the table, then you don't have inclusion or diversity at all. So, of course, there is a lot of discussion around gender equality and there needs to be, that is still something that we have to forge forward. But the intersectionality that somebody like myself faces is that I am a female, but I also live with a physical disability. And so how do I help educate organisations to understand that both of those things are actually benefits for an organisation and how can I allow other people the opportunity to have that same platform? And so that's what the consultancy is around. It's around making sure that it's not just me, it's as many people as possible being able to to do this. I absolutely love this because actually earlier you spoke about um, how disability is seen and how organisations or people are responding to disability and to create the right environment But it's not just about the right physical environment that invites people in of disability. So, you know, your your retail centres that makes it more accessible. It's about going, actually, how do we become a more inclusive work environment Um, and and pays well for that and respects people, treats people with dignity and respect. And that's the kind of environment as well that's more hidden and not discussed and overt. And those are the kinds of things that organisations can do, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's sorry, I was just going to say it's about it's about people culture and yeah. the, a lot of the work that I do now is about just educating what is disability? What is inclusion? And if somebody with a disability is employed, how can other individuals feel comfortable because that's essentially what it is at the end of the day we fear what we don't know what we don't understand so if you can alleviate some of that stigma and if you can focus on respect 
of everyone, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, no matter what their abilities are, it allows for everybody to, to benefit, especially in that work environment. Yeah. It's so important. And Jonathan, we, we experienced this. So our youngest daughter, um, she's now 28, Alana. Um, and it, it was actually during COVID, we discovered that she's severely deaf. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why did we discovered that was because everybody was wearing masks. So through the whole of her life, she was actually, um, Jonathan thought she was ignoring him sometimes. <laughs> I thought it was quite rude. What, what's going on, your daughters? Because actually before that, we did not know she had a hearing problem. My son, but I think his might be selective hearing. Whereas my daughter, um, for her, we never actually realized and appreciated. And she came across a challenge within her work environment recently where all of this had been uncovered and how the environment kind of, the, they were so supportive of her, the, the organization, but also her team members and what them understanding, what does that mean for them and how can they support her? The development, the opportunity there to help everybody create that culture is really important too. Mm. Uh, no, and it's triggered also, um, as well as uh, the, the, the uh, identifying our daughter and that uh, her deafness, but I'm thinking also the comments you made earlier, Jessica, about respect. Now, respect, people have this belief that you earn my respect. You begin with zero. Well, actually, there's another term, which is dignity. Mm. That's a birthright. Everybody's born with dignity and should be treated with dignity. And that's something which gets eroded by the way people treat them. Either they increase their dignity or they're not. But I, I think it's a lovely word. And and I, I went to a wonderful course at Harvard. And um, Professor Donna Hicks was my professor, who's written a great book on dignity. And, and if you haven't read it, it's, it's well worth reading. Next topic, which is something that Lee and I care deeply about as we're going through our sort of fitness regime and uh, uh, eating healthily, and I've given up alcohol and um, I haven't completely now. <laughs> Lee, Lee, Lee represents the Bo Bowman Perks family in the in the drinking stakes, but not very much. Um, but um, yeah, what we eat, what we put into our bodies, but also working with personal trainers as we do, and then having, you know, a mixture between cardio and weight session each week. What is a tip you'd give to people listening that, that's worked for you now at the stage you're at about your physical health and well-being and your mental health as well? Because, you know, like me, uh, you've been through some struggles with the mental health. So what has got you to a good place now? Well, definitely being physically active and movement has helped with my mental well-being. Uh, but I think for me, it's about knowing that I've been able to find my own way of doing things and that's perfectly okay. So I am quite fit, I'm quite strong, uh, and I value uh, the way that my body works. But it obviously looks different to the way somebody with two hands might do things. So I, I can do unlimited amount of push-ups but I use a medicine ball to be able to balance out my shoulders and get the right amount of movement to do that push-up properly uh, so it looks different but it's still achieving the same outcome and I think that you know for a lot of people that this needs to be part of the discussion is that we don't necessarily have to do everything a certain way we can find flexibility in our own way of doing things that are going to benefit us because of course age and ability and all of these things come into how our body is going to react and respond to different um, 
exercises, different, you know, physical movements. And so being able to have a little bit of compassion for ourselves to know that we can achieve um, and we can push our bodies to the extreme, but we might have to make some accommodations or a few ad- adaptions in order to, you know, achieve certain um exercises or whatever it might be so to give you an example I've well and truly retired from my swimming career and I had a moment last year where I thought maybe I'll run a marathon so it was obviously like a midlife crisis I need to tick a box Um, and I honestly didn't know how I would be literally a fish out of water I'd never done a fun run nothing Um, and earlier this year I ran the Paris marathon I'm about to run the Dubai marathon and in March I'll run Tokyo and And for me, obviously, I have that athletic background and I know what it takes to to push myself, but I also know what it takes to be able to sort of hold off a little bit. Um, But what's been the most challenging, um, probably mentally, is knowing and accepting that I'm not the same person that I was in my late teens, early 20s, and being able to accept that um, and therefore get the right treatment and recovery, uh, all part of that training thing. You know, I'm not invincible. uh, None of us are. So making sure that all of those things are part of what I understand as wellness and fitness and strength. Um, So yeah, making sure that we do all of it yeah no great advice and uh what about diet what do you tend to uh eat on a daily basis talk us through your your day of what you eat so typically eggs on toast in the morning um and then chicken salad for lunch i'm married to an iranian and so there's a lot of rice just all the time um so i'm used to carbs all the time but I think um, you know I was also vegan for a few years and what was really interesting is when I started running I wasn't able to recover as quickly uh, with just a vegan based diet and I know a lot of athletes who are vegan and who are able to perform in peak performance on a vegan diet but that was a really um, interesting moment for me to realize that this wasn't working for me as an individual I needed to change some things But also from my experience as an elite athlete and the eating disorders and perhaps the disordered eating that was so common in that particular environment was something that I have to be aware of every single day. You know, and the more I train, being very aware that I have to fuel my body, it's very important. So, you know, I know we touched on that briefly, but even though I'm now in recovery from my eating disorders, um, recovery is lifelong and so that's all part of making sure that I am getting the fuel that I need in order to be able to run the distances that I do but also being a good role model for not only my children but children everywhere who who are watching this journey to know that you know what we eat uh, and what we put inside our body is very important you know I'm very much a believer of food being thy medicine um, and making sure that we are fueling it based on our individual requirements very wise thank you lovely um so it's clear that you've just been through this whole kind of journey of resilience um and you've bounced back from the the face of adversity and you've developed this wonderful brand so again a couple of the components of inspiring leadership and the compass um that we have i'd like to bring them together which is one around the resilience but again it's back to in service of so you've built a phenomenal brand for yourself that is 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 in service of other people. It's very clear there's an authenticity in your message, um, that it's very clear about what you're there to do. 
and the legacy that you're leaving, the book that you've written, these choices that you've made, which are to help to change the narrative in the world, the culture, society. And so um, I'd love to know a little bit more, um, and if you could share with our listeners about um, creating that brand that's so authentic and how you can stay true to that, how you can stay resilient and focused on it. Any tips there? Well, I think the brand is essentially me. And I say that without ego because I, I'm really quite aware of that. It's not, even though the brand is me. And what I mean by that is it's my story and my experiences articulated in a way that I can deliver to various audiences. So it might be the C-suite of an organization and it might be a classroom full of five-year-old children. The messaging is the same. It's just told in a way that suits that particular audience, but it's my experience. And so I have to be vulnerable. I have to be authentic because people will see through it. And interestingly enough, it's often the kids that see through it, you know, more quickly than anybody else. Um, and so for me, that was obviously very hard though, as well at the beginning, because any criticism, any feedback was very personal because here I am sharing my story and putting myself out there it, with the idea of helping others, but at the same time, anything you say or do against that is essentially against me. However, I now realize that I can put up, I guess, a barrier between who I am when I'm on stage and who I am when I'm at home, you know, with my husband and my children is the same person, but also different. It's not, it's not so much that there's a alter ego, but it's just being able to know what to share, what not to share, but to be able to do that in a way that the message still gets through and the message is very much the same. And I hope that, you know, I know you're saying it's genuine, but I really do hope that everyone that I come into interactions with feels that as well, because it was what I lacked so much when I was growing up. And so that level of empathy and wanting to make sure that people really feel that is something that is more important to me than, you know, the amount of books that I sell or anything like that. And so, you know, if that means I'm up until midnight responding to messages and staying later at a conference to be able to talk to somebody uh, in the audience who has never shared that they have a disability because, you know, they're living with a disability that nobody sees, then that's where the importance comes. And so you you give a lot of yourself but what I get back is fills my cup and that's something that I can't really share with other people but that's why I share my story because I'm able to gain a sense of fulfillment from the authenticity and respect that I get from other people and so I have to be able to pay that forward um, I don't know if that fully answers your question now because I've rambled on a bit but it's it's me as a brand, but the messaging stays the same. And so whether that is the books that I write or whether that's going in and giving a workshop, there will always be that personal connection because I feel that, again, this, the power of storytelling is what people can connect to. It's what brings it down to a level of humanity. And I think that is really important. And often that's what's lacking when we have leaders who preach and tell us what to do when they, and it's coming from a level of authority and for me, I've never responded to that sort of leadership. So it was what what did I see when I was growing up with my coaches and with my teachers and with other people in my life? What worked for me? And it was being able to have um, a connection that was that was genuine. Yeah, it reminds me of the Theodore Roosevelt um, uh, quote, which is um, around it's not the critic who counts, 
the man in the arena. Um, we should share that, Jonathan, in um, the details of the podcast as well so people can actually read it because it's so powerful um, mm. around those that actually enter the arena. They have the courage to and tenacity to see it through. And there's a reason there was a rationale behind the question as well, which is um, almost a decade ago now I set up a charity called the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, which is to help women and girls around the world to succeed in life and to feel empowered and financially independent. And we've got a number of different strategies for that. But what I hear in terms of their stories quite often is they have a, a hope and aspiration um, with lots of critics around them, but a hope and an aspiration for themselves, but sometimes shame, discouragement, so many different things get in, in the way of them developing a brand that is about them, it's not anybody else's, but about them in service of something. And so those words of wisdom, I think, will really resonate with them. And I'd like to to, to thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure, because I think you're right. It, it's it's knowing that it's not, it's not from a place of ego. It's a place from good intent. And I think if we can always take ourselves back to that, it will allow us to then succeed and excel when we decide that that brand is, is essentially us. Yeah. Yeah. No, beautifully put the pair of you. Thank you. And just really let me thinking about quite a lot of what you've just been both been speaking about. Um, you've just come back from COP. I mean, you're in the UAE, but you've been at COP. Uh, the next topic is legacy. And of course, COP is all about a legacy for our children that, that hopefully the world is still here and we haven't used it all up. Uh, my first question is, what would you like your legacy to be? And my second one is, what did you take away from attending COP? My legacy, I hope, you know, from a physical or tangible standpoint is my children's books, um, which are essentially a series of three stories about a little girl with one arm on her first day at school, her first swimming race, and when she joins a band. So stories that everyone can relate to, but it was a resource that I wanted to put out into the world that allowed children and parents to start a conversation about some complex topics. So I hope that that is a conversation that will continue for a long time. Um, obviously, just being a good person, that's a legacy, especially for my children, that to be a good person is paramount. From COP, um, a lot of conversations, obviously, around what can we do for the younger generation. And one of the most profound discussions that I had was that we don't necessarily realise just how intelligent and forward-thinking our children are. And perhaps it's slightly arrogant of us to think that we need to help them to understand what the future will be like because they're actually already paving that way for themselves and for us. A lot of them understand exactly what's going on and they're angry um, and they're frustrated. So instead of trying to teach them about sustainability, Perhaps where we are best fit to serve our children is to help them to deal with the emotions around that because we've kind of put them in this situation. So uh, a lot of what I took was not so much, you know, dissecting the complexities of sustainability and across all industries, what does that actually mean? But how can we help nurture our children to still have that understanding of humanity and empathy so that they continue to empower one another and essentially not turn on each other when times are going to get very difficult. Thank you. So there's an expression, don't work with dogs or children. Now, clearly, <laughs> we do need to work with children based on that message. 
But um, for the listeners that can't see at the moment, my dog has jumped up into my arms and started to growl at something I don't know what. So certainly, hopefully not me. Um, but anyway, I'm going to attempt to ask this next question, which is, you know, um, as you think about this amazing ride for unity that we're going on to, um, what is it that you're hoping to contribute uh, during that ride and also the events around the ride itself as well? So just to be together and to collaborate and that sense of camaraderie, I think, in the team of people who have been selected to ride, you know, I feel very honoured and very privileged to to be on this journey with everybody else. Um, but as a collective, I think, you know, what we will be able to bring to the community of the UAE, our different stories, our different perspectives and backgrounds. And of course, for me, the opportunity to go into various schools around the UAE and read some of my stories and share my own personal journey, I think will um, you know, it's something that I can can hopefully add to the younger generations. Um, my riding isn't very fantastic, um, but I'll be there to support everybody else and sort of, you know, um, hopefully they'll sweep me up in the peloton and, and help me to to conquer a lot of those kilometres. But it's it's that sense of togetherness and hope and an opportunity, like I was saying at the beginning. Um, and it's a symbolic for inclusion and making sure people understand that, all of the things that make us different are actually all the things that make us very similar and alike. And I think it's a message that's profound no matter how old you are or no matter where you're from. Fantastic. Well, that brings us nicely um, to um, the last piece, which is your top leadership tip. So, Jessica, would you kindly introduce yourself, give a little thumbnail of, of who you are and what you've done in the past and uh, give us your top leadership tip and that will round the session off very nicely. My name is Jessica Smith. I'm Australian Paralympic swimmer and disability and com inclusion consultant and children's author. And my top tip for leadership is to be the role model that you never had. Make sure that you can help grow with your team by sharing your failures and your vulnerability. Wow. Be the role model you never had. Um, I, I think that's such a lovely, such a lovely quote. Well, look, Jessica, this has been a wonderful session. And I know as we get to work with each other uh, and uh, I, I've got a bit of a heart problem, so I'm not going to be doing all the uh, elements of the uh, the ride, but I'll be doing some and Lee will be very supportive and, and do guest appearance because she doesn't do riding. She does all the weight training. Uh, <laughs> okay. So so um, we, we're in we're not in a strong position for bike riding at all. Uh, that's right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the lovely thing is, as you say, there's going to be workshops, there's going to be events. We're going to be in schools. We're going to be in universities. We're going to be looking at uh, the replanting of mangrove swamps and uh, what can be done on the seabed. Uh, about sustainability there's such a range of different things but this this message of riding for unity in the uae and and that it can be done in other countries as well this is the first of of what i think can be achieved so thank you for your contributions and thank you for being on the inspiring leadership podcast thank you so much for having me thank you jessica thank you for listening we hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter 
You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.